Anyways, today we are going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. So if you want to go on ahead and turn your Bible there, that's where we're going to be. Um, so to open up this morning, um, this past January, I had a class, an online Zoom course with Presbyterian pastor, theologian, um, professor, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. And so some of you may or may not know who he is um, through his work with Ligonier Ministries and, um, and stuff like that. He's, he's kind of up there for me with uh, Tim Keller, John Piper, and all those guys. Um, so anyways, he's in Scotland. Um, and so we were doing this Zoom course. It was 8 o'clock my time, like 2 or 3. It was mid-afternoon for them over there. Um, and so I remember jumping on early one morning because I didn't want to be late. And it was just me and him on there. And I'm like, this is my chance to, to get all the free wisdom before everybody else gets on here. And so I remember I had worked up the nerve to ask him, I'm like, Dr. Ferguson, what's one piece of advice that you would want to impart to a younger um, pastor? And so um, to which he replied in his thick Scottish accent, I'm not even going to attempt it because Sarah will laugh at me with her phenomenal accents. Um, he said, what an American question. I'm like, oh great, I'm about to get roasted by a spiritual giant that I look up to. Here we go. Um, but, but he didn't, thank goodness. And he said one of the most profound things that will stick with me for a long time. He said, there's a big difference in loving to teach versus loving the people you teach. When you just love to teach, you'll appeal to the intellect. But when you love the people you teach, you'll shepherd the heart. And he said, always, always, always aim for shepherding. And I think that's precisely what we see in our text this morning, that's why I start with that. Um, we see this prayer from Paul as a very pastoral and shep- shepherdal. I just made up that word, prayer. Um, so to keep in mind the context, the context is key to understand what he's praying for. Um, it's debated that the church at Colossae was birthed during Paul's two-year ministry stint um, in Ephesus. We read about that in Acts chapter 19. And also in Acts chapter 19, we read about um, Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And these two visitors from Colossae were in the crowd and became believers during this missionary journey, and their names were Epaphras, who we read, read about last week, and another brother named Philemon, um, who also has a book of the Bible. And so it was Epaphras who served in the Lycus Valley, also known as Colossae, who was evangelizing there, who was preaching the gospel there. And this is how Paul played a part in planning a church that he never actually visited face to face. It's the power of church planning and the beauty of the gospel and how it spreads. But we know that Paul penned this letter because of this issue of this heretical Gnosticism that had popped up in the culture and was starting to infiltrate its way into the church. And see, the Gnostics held to this special form of higher intellect, this higher spiritual enlightenment that was only revealed to this spiritual elite. They denied the incarnation of Jesus... Um, because they believed that God could not be involved with creation because creation was intrinsically evil and God was perfect. So therefore, Jesus couldn't have been God. He couldn't have been because they just can't go together. They believed the heresy that only Jesus was a ghost-like phantom and not the creator. And they believed that the incarnation was essentially a hoax and that in that they denied the sufficiency of Jesus 
altogether. And so you need to know that context um, to understand what Paul's praying for this morning. And so they also had this system of this self-attained knowledge um, that involved some ascetic disciplines that they ripped off from Jewish legalism. They incorporated some secret passwords that they ripped off from Eastern mysticism. Um, and they threw in some astrology in there and some other elements. It was really like a Heinz 57 set of beliefs. They pulled a little bit from everybody to create this puffed up, extremely cerebral, cerebral and arrogant belief system. And here's the problem. This had infiltrated its way into the church because the Gnostics, in their pride, looked down on these uh, Colossian believers and their s- simplicity of faith and browbeat them as close and weak-minded and even led some of them astray. And so Epaphras brought this alarming news to Paul which would break any pastor's heart and make you want to throat punch a heretic, okay? And so that's what happened. And so what does Paul do in this moment? Paul could have easily thrown this deep instruction at these Colossians. Like, how are you buying into this garbage? Like, come on, man, Epaphras is preaching the gospel. What are you doing? But he doesn't do that. Look at in the verse 8. He says, Epaphras, my beloved brother, has made known to me your love in the Spirit this bonding agent of grace for believers. And since then, since the day we have heard, I have not ceased to pray for you. Isn't that so good, man? Paul could have thrown all kind of deep instructions at these believers, but he shepherds them through reminding them of the gospel of grace and reminds them that he has ceaselessly been praying for them. Paul's aim was shepherding their hearts. And I think that's his aim for us this morning. So I want to look at three things quickly in this prayer this morning that I think that we can pull and, uh, and, and live out in our own lives. So the first thing is this. The supremacy of Christ moves us to live out the knowledge of God that we have received. Verses 9 and 10, look with me. It'll be on the screen. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so Paul starts by praying that these Colossians believers will be filled with the knowledge and of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so I believe this is strategic language that Paul uses here. Because he knew that the um, Colossians were under attack from these Gnostics pushing on them a better knowledge, a higher knowledge. And so he prays for this spiritual knowledge for the Colossians. And see, these Gnostics, they were very subtle. They were like, Jesus is an okay place to start, but... There's more to experience. There's more to experience through these set of passwords, these rites, these initiations. It was a Jesus plus X, Y, and Z. Unless we think in 2021 that we're far removed from Gnosticism, it sneaks in very, very easily. It's Jesus plus political party ideologies. It's Jesus plus getting my life together. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that And so Paul here prays for a transformative knowledge. And he understood that Gnostic philosophy, this self-attained knowledge in and of itself, was weak and non-transformative. Why? Because it was a knowledge of man. 
And so where the Gnostics pushed culture to attain this self-gnosis, which is knowledge, Greek word for uh, knowledge is gnosis, they were pushing, the culture was pushing these Colossian believers to this. Paul here, and this is hugely important, Paul here prays the Colossian church will be filled with wisdom and understanding that was singularly spiritual. And that word for, um, where, where is that? Knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom, that word there is epignosis, the Greek word for precise and correct knowledge, a, which means a personal knowledge of Jesus and his will. Where the, where the Gnostics were pushing you, hey, there's more you can do to know God. Paul's like, mm, I'm going to pray for a knowledge that's only granted from God for you because that's what you need because that's the only thing that can transform you. And so it was a top-down knowledge, a knowledge from God to man. And so he, we should be so saturated, a prayer that we should be so saturated with the word that when we hear culture's seductive allure, culture's seductive gnosis, that, that knowledge to pull us in, that we can filter everything we know through God's epignosis of, of his will and what he wants. It's the Psalms 1, 1 and 2 knowledge that God blesses. Listen to this. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so it's in our seeking the Lord, meditating on his law, meditating on who he is, knowing him more fully, then we will crave what Jesus craves, we'll love what Jesus loves, we'll hate what Jesus hates. Why? Because it's not man trying to know who God, it's not us uh, trying to attain the self-knowledge of ourselves. it's God molding us through his word. It's God doing the work, not man. And so, this is why Paul prays for spiritual wisdom. A wisdom, because wisdom is experiential knowledge. Wisdom is experiential knowledge, right? That's what wisdom is. It's not an overnight fix, it's a lifelong pursuit and work of God. For illustration, working out. Look, I get, I don't work out. I get that. I can, you can look at me and know I don't work out. But I do know I have worked out before. Um, and, uh, before, maybe once or twice. Um, and, and I know that dumbbells, if you pick those bad boys up and start doing curls, it's going to do something around in here. Maybe bicep, right, Austin? Yeah, we clarified that in the first service. Um, it's going to work out your bicep. If you do bench presses, it's gonna, you're, you're going to get bigger here. If you do uh, get on a treadmill, you're going you're gonna to burn uh, calories from, from cardio and stuff. I can know all the knowledge of working out, but I lack any transformation for my body until I pick up the weights, until I get on the treadmill, until I get under the bench press. And so this is why we see Paul not just pray for a knowledge in verse 10 that makes us smarter religious people, but he prays that we would be transformed disciples of Jesus, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This word walk here in verse 10 symbolically refers to one's conduct. See, in the Hebrew mind, when they heard this word walk, knowledge and conduct were one and the same for, for them. Um, they were inseparable. In their view, you didn't truly know something unless you practiced it. And so we see here in verse 10, Paul emphatically says that our true knowledge leads to transform living in all arenas of our life. And this is seen all throughout scripture. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. I want you to present your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. 
being transformed by the renewal of your what? Of your mind. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it is God's will for you to be sanctified. It's not God's will for you to just sit and, and rack up all this knowledge of knowing things. It's for you to be molded and crafted into the image of Jesus. We're so obsessed with wanting to know what is our purpose in life? What's God's will for my life? Paul's pretty clear. It's to be molded into the image of Jesus. That's God's will for your life. That's his purpose. To, to live out the things that you believe. And for us, this true spiritual knowledge means action. Where do I get this? The entire book of James. The entire book. That's what James is about. It's the premise of the book. That, that as we grow in our faith, true saving faith produces a life that bears fruit in every facet of life. Not just compartmentalized zones that we give God permission to infiltrate. As if that's even possible. And so... Paul wanted these Colossians and us to live out the gospel that we proclaim to believe and in so bear fruit in every good work. Did you catch that? Bear fruit in every good work. Not in some good work. In every good work. There is no part of our lives that is excluded from the call to please God. Not a single area. When we're at home, how we deal with our spouse, how we deal with our kids, how we deal with our roommates at work, how we interact with our coworkers, how we submit and interact with our bosses. When we're out with the guys, when we're out with, when you're out with the ladies, when, or girls, that sounded bad. Ladies, when you're out with ladies, um, in, in your finances, in your speech, the question that we always need to be asking is, Am I pleasing God? Am I seeking? Am I striving to please God in these areas? When you're in traffic and the person cuts you off and you want to tell them they're number one in a bad way, that moment too, He wants us to please Him in. The goal is by God's grace to live in a way that pleases God in both the big, because that's where I I feel like we tend to always focus on the big, but Paul's saying very much in the mundane rhythms too. And the mission trips to Africa. He's involved in that just as much as he is involved in the text sent to a friend who is walking through a season of suffering and you send them gospel encouragement. To serving together for the city weekends of throwing mulch all across the city and pressure washing and transforming a sanctuary. He's very much involved in that and he's also very much involved with how we deal with telemarketers for the 10th time in the same day. He's very much involved in serving in kids, running slides, working sound. And he's also very much involved in pouring our kids cereal on a Saturday morning. He's in all of it and he wants all of it. It doesn't matter if you're at a Bible study or at the barber shop. We are called to live out the three things last week. Faith, hope, and love and bear fruit that only the gospel can do. God wants all of it, not just some of it. He's after both the monumental and the minutia. And so, Paul prays for a knowledge that transforms us, that we live out. And then number two, the supremacy of Christ leads us to a life of steadfast perseverance. Look with me in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And so Paul's desire is that every Christian endure to the very end. 
We're not called to just start things. We're not called to just jump into ministries and serve. We are also called to finish well. I feel like we don't talk about that a lot, man. But Paul here says we are called to finish well. He wants us to keep enduring in that faith, keep enduring in that hope, and keep enduring in that love until that very faith, hope, and love that we are striving for has been attained and our faith becomes sight. We are to persevere to the end. And here's the good news, church. You are never abandoned to fight this battle called life alone. Just as the Holy Spirit fills us, is the one who fills us with all wisdom and understanding, He's also the very one who causes you to persevere in the mission that He's called you to. And that's good news. And so, how do I know that? Because the most powerful indication of the Holy Spirit's invisible work in our lives is that believers still believe despite rough circumstances. How do I know that? Because in verse 10, if you are to live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, where you hold Jesus as supreme in all things, literally all things, then you are signing up. You are putting your name on the line to sign up for a life of rejection, a life of resistance from a spiritually blind and a spiritually dead culture. That's just true. How do I know that? Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.23, what does he say? Does he say this? We, we, we strive to preach Christ crucified. It's a great encouragement to the Jews and an alluring message to the Gentiles. Absolutely not. He says, we, str- we push forward to preach Christ crucified. That's what? A stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. It makes no sense to a lost and dying world. And so... To be a Christ follower in 2021 is to be labeled maybe some of these things. Bigoted, maybe you've heard some of these. Closed-minded, shallow, non-inclusive, fundamentalist, weak-minded, brainwashed, just to name a few. Any of y'all heard that by chance in the news, just in day-to-day life? Kind of sounds vaguely familiar, right? And this is what the Colossians are dealing with. And Paul's prayer is that we, like King Jesus, will endure and have a long-suffering. That Greek word for uh, patience right there literally means long-suffering spirit with one another where we support one another as believers come alongside one another to pray for one another, to lean into one another, and to not only that, but to also love those outside the church who are doing the very persecuting that we're praying for one another for. And so that sounds super hard and super not fun. And it's almost like Paul anticipated you thinking that. Because he says, Paul understood that this kind of perseverance is not, is not for man, but can only come from the Lord. That's why he prays that you would be strengthened with all power. That all power is not your power. It's not. It's only from the Lord. So it's a call for us to press in, pray for one another as we live as sojourners, as we live to take risk for the gospel, knowing that there's nothing that can ultimately condemn us and there's nothing that can ultimately separate us because of the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans chapter 8. And so we can have hope in that. And so he calls us to, to live out the knowledge of God that we've received, to, to press in and to, and to live a life of steadfast perseverance by God's grace. And number three, the last thing, is Christ, the supremacy of Christ in our lives bursts gospel gratitude. Look with me in verses 12 through 14. 
And so not only do we pray for endurance and patience with joy, but we want you to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of of sin. And so if there was a peak or a summit to this prayer that Paul was praying, this is it. This is the climax of this prayer. Qualifications are a bit of a modern obsession for us, aren't they? Um, and, it, and it makes sense for them to be in this really competitive job market that we have. Um, it's really a dog-eat-dog world out there. And so the only way to get ahead is to show that you are superior to all of your rivals. And so how do we show that we're superior? We do that through qualification. So whether it be uh, different trade qualifications, like I have a specialty in uh, machinery or a specialty in this or that or welding, or we, we also do this through education. I have a bachelor's of arts degree to get me an entry-level job, but if I want this pay raise, I have to go to, I have to, go to this next level. And I have to, to get this position, I have to get a master's degree. I have to go for an MA. And if I want to reach the, the pinnacle of it, I really need to go get my, my PhD. And if you're really an overachiever, you go for multiple PhDs or, or uh, what's the doc- DMDs is for doctors, I think, or... LMNOPs, I don't know. Whatever. You know what I'm saying. It's through our earning of these qualifications that we show ourselves fit. And so what qualification here, according to verses 12 through 14, does Paul have in mind for the position of sharing in the inheritance of God's kingdom of light? Do you feel like you have that qualification in and of yourself? Um, He says this inheritance comes only to the saints or holy people. So does this mean that we need some certain level of holiness um, to find ourselves fit for the position of the kingdom of God? If yes, how holy do we need to be? Is it like a driver's license test where we can only screw up X amount of times to meet the bare qualification to pass? Or is it like studying for the bar exam of theology where it's this huge deal where you can't screw up any? And I think this is the very picture of Christianity that's rampant in our culture. It's really close to home. I can't be in church until I clean up my life. I can't be in church until I, until I get this figured out. How many of you guys have heard that before from friends or people you try to bring, invite in? I'm not good enough for church. I've got to get life figured out first. To which I would reply, dude, none of us will ever be qualified for church if that's the case um and so this idea didn't originate with jesus jesus was the friend of who sinners and tax collectors and so it was the very churchy folks of jesus time who orchestrated his execution and his death and so also if holiness is up to us how do we even measure goodness what does that even look like is it? I'm, I'm sure some of us in this room, or actually all of us in this room, would pitch ourselves somewhere between Hitler and Mother Teresa. Somewhere along the spectrum, we're going to fall. Somewhere in there. And so, is the if the passing mark for holiness is 50 percent, you got to get 50 percent to get in. What if we only get 49 percent? We're like, well, 49 percent. That's pretty good. It's not quite good enough, but it's still pretty good. That's not how it works, though, because God's word tells us that Scripture tells us that anything less than perfection. Is nothing less than perfection is appropriate for God. And here's the freeing reality and truth of the Christian gospel. It's that this kind of discussion is absolutely ludicrous and pointless. Look at verse 12. Why is gospel gratitude the response of a believer? Why is gratitude our response? Because qualification 
in the metrics of the kingdom of God is always granted and never earned. That's how God's kingdom works. Those who are unqualified get qualified through the work of Christ. And so, the Father in His grace is the one who does the qualifying. He is the one who grants the qualification of saint or holy to us and is secured through the person and work of His Son. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. And so this great transfer, I can't think of a better verse. I I think I mention it every sermon I preach. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him, Jesus, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the reality of this great transfer, as Luther calls it, the great exchange takes place on the cross. Whereas we are alienated, Christ receives our alienation, we receive Christ's approval. We, Christ receives our spiritually deadness, we receive God's delight. Christ receives our sin, we receive His sonship. Christ becomes a foe for us, we receive Christ's friendship. Do you see the magnitude of what Paul is saying that God qualifies us for? It's the beauty of the gospel. And this is why the prayer, the knowing the context is key because that is something that Gnosticism and human striving will always, always, always fail to do. You can strive and you can strive and you can strive, but you'll never live up to the the standard. But the gospel is that Christ did. He died for us. He was crushed for us. And he transfers us into the kingdom of light. And so no longer do we have to fear Satan, sin, death, and hell. Because Christ endured our Satan, sin, death, and hell. We get to be kingdoms, uh, sons and daughters of the kingdom of light. And that's the good news. And so unbeliever, repent of your sin. Rest in Christ. Today could be the day of salvation. And if that's true of you, I would love to pray with you afterwards and talk with you more. Um, Ben, you can come on back up here. And for believers, I want to encourage you this morning with the story of Perpetua. It's a real story. Um, For those of you who are in spiritual formations, this is going to be a little bit of a, um, a, a repeat story, but bear with me. So, the supremacy of Jesus was more important to Perpetua than anything. So Perpetua was a early first century um, believer in North Africa, and she literally had everything that a woman in that time period could long for. She came from a wealthy, affluent family. She literally had it all. Her family was held high in society. She had a husband. She had a kid. Everything the culture prized Perpetua had. Perpetua was willing to put it all on the line for the sake of Christ, though. There, became a, there came on the scene an emperor um, named Severius, I think. Um, but anyways, this emperor said he gave out a decree that anyone who will not offer sacrifices to him as God would be put to death in the amphitheater by animals for sport. And so Perpetua denied, refused to give in to the, this pagan king's decree. And so the story goes, Perpetua's father came to her and said, Perpetua, think of your family legacy. Think about what's all at stake here. It's not just about you. It's about our family. We, we want to honor our family as an honor-shame culture. 
Honor your family. Just, just offer the sacrifice. It's just a sacrifice. She refused. She comes back to hit her on a more personal level. Perpetual. Think about your husband. Think about your kids. You don't want your kids growing up without a mom. You don't want your husband to go along through this life without a spouse. Think about them. Don't give in. I mean, go ahead and give in. Do it. Just do it. It's just a sacrifice. And the story goes, Perpetua said, Hey, Dad, there was a ceramic pitcher sitting on a table. He said, What is that? He said, Well, it's a pitcher. I mean, it's just what it is. And she said, Okay, can that pitcher be called anything else? Can, does it have any other purpose but to hold water? And he said, Well, no, that's what a pitcher is. It, it is a pitcher and it holds water. And she said, In the same way, I am a Christian. And I can bow down to no other king but, Christ, but King Jesus alone. And so, believer, the supremacy of Jesus was more important to Perpetua than her family legacy. The supremacy of Jesus was more important to her than her husband's supremacy of Jesus was more important to her than her kids. The supremacy of Jesus was more important to her than her own life. And here's the reality. Christ Her Christ purchase qualification led her to a reorientation of what she treasured. And I think that's what Paul is praying for every believer in this room this morning. It was a knowledge that was lived out and caused her to persevere to the very end for the glory of God and the good of others. And so, believer, the same opportunity to live for Christ's supremacy that she had is the same one that's offered to us day in and day out to take risks for the glory of God because He's worth it. And the freeing reality is it's not about some heroic pursuit of God. It's about God's faithful pursuit of us. Let's pray. So, King Jesus... I pray that by your grace, that if there's an unbeliever in this room, that you would would take them maybe from a cerebral head knowledge of who you were and by the power of your spirit, transform their hearts to reveal to them their sin, cause them to repent of their sin. And as Ezekiel says, to give them a heart of flesh, to cause them to walk in your statutes, to walk in your ways, to walk in a way that glorifies you, that they would persevere all the way to the end for your glory and their good. And so for believers, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us in the gospel, that we would see the story of Perpetua, that she not just had a head knowledge of you, but she put her life on the line. She risked everything she had because she saw your supremacy as everything. I pray that Safe Haven Church would be said of us that we see Christ's supremacy above everything that this world has to offer. And only you can grant that, only you can birth that, and only you can give that. And Lord, we ask that you do that today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.